But right now, I am joined by Dr. James Gill, Chief Medical Examiner for the State of Connecticut. Good morning, James. Good morning. How are we today? Very well, thank you. That's good. That's good. Uh, thank you so much for coming in this morning. Um, just first off, Connecticut, about one million fewer people than New Zealand, but about 5% of the size. <laughs> Right, it is a very <laughs> compact uh, state, uh, about two hours from New York City, is yeah. New Haven. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, I'm I, just looking at the population density, um, you have uh, 285 people per square, kilo, per, uh, per square kilo, kilometer, oh, sorry, and we have 18. Okay. So <laughs> that's well, the difference, right. that's <laughs> the difference. So um, yeah, very compact. Um, you're also a former New York City medical examiner, uh, and you work at Yale University. Uh, the Department of uh, Pathology, they are uh, working with uh, experimental pathology graduate program. Is that correct? Yes, the pathology residency. Mm. Okay, um, now you're here, you're giving a public lecture today at Castle Street 1 at 5.30 to 6.30, uh, Forensic Pathology in the US, Death, Drugs and Disasters. To start off, just give us a basic rundown of exactly what uh, Forensic Pathology is. Uh, forensic Pathology is that area of medicine uh, that deals with uh, the investigation of sudden, uh, suspicious or unnatural deaths. So deaths that are related to trauma, such as gunshot shot wounds or stab wounds, drownings, drug overdoses, motor vehicle collision deaths, mm -hmm. all of those will come under the, the medical examiner or the coroner uh, for investigation and then death certification. Mm -hmm. And what, what is exactly the role of the chief medical examiner? So I supervise the, uh, the other medical examiners and I'm in charge of the, the office, but I also do investigations myself and perform autopsies. Last year I performed about 280 autopsies. Wow. So it's not just a desk job. It's no, no, not in Connecticut. <laughs> yeah. um, now, yes, Connecticut. Um, we're going to talk about the opioid crisis. Uh, it's it's a wealthy state. Um, I think the richest per capita in the United States. Um, so people might be surprised uh, at the size of the opioid crisis there, um, because when you think of drug overdose, you think uh, poor, homeless, inner city, uh, um, young men. Um, but that's not the reality, is it? No, not at all. Uh, we see it across the state. We see it in college students, in, in high school students, uh, in, in people or in businesses. Uh, it's really uh, taken off. In the last three or four years, the number of people who've died from drug intoxications in Connecticut have increased 300 mm percent. -hmm. So we're doing around 350 or so a few years ago. This year, we're on track to do over 1,000. Wow. Um, and the other thing is, you, you, you might automatically go to heroin or morphine um, as uh, a large cause of this. Um, and, and of course they are, but um, the root problem for uh, and the beginning of a lot of these issues is um, painkillers that are prescribed. Um, people, um, you know, getting a, a back pain. Uh, which could be dealt with with something a lot weaker, um, but are giving quite strong opioids. Right. I, I believe there, there is a there had there has been a problem in the United States with overprescription of pain medications by physicians, uh, and that has I think kind of um, selected out a lot of the people who may have a, a, a risk for uh, addiction. Mm. Uh, and so when uh, the, the the physician or the state cuts off their or their insurance company cuts off their, their pain medication prescription, uh, well, they're still addicted and they're going to find yeah. other ways and they go to the street.
street, mm -hmm. uh, and they look for heroin. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has, in the last year and a half, two years, uh, fentanyl, illicit fentanyl. So this is not uh, fentanyl that's made by a pharmaceutical company. This is fentanyl made in uh, clandestine labs. Uh, that's really even started to replace the heroin. We're seeing more fentanyl deaths than heroin deaths. Yeah. Why are the doctors prescribing these drugs in the in, in the first place is because you know you expect a doctor to be very well educated uh, they've gone through mo multiple multiple years of university college education uh, and, and you one one would expect them to be able to identify um, pain um, uh, the the type of pain the strength of the pain uh, and prescribe the right drug and not just um, a, 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 the drug of of choice because especially they know the opioid crisis is happening so one would imagine that they would try to slow down the use of those drugs as well right i think uh, you know, a whole generation of physicians kind of forgot that that opioids are so addictive uh some people point to a, a letter to the editor in the new england journal of medicine a very prestigious medical journal uh, as many years mm. ago uh that described a small study in a hospital where they looked at the number of people who were being treated in the hospital with with pain medication and how many of those people became addicted and they found a very low number uh, and the pharmaceutical companies jumped on that and seized on that and said look you know we have to treat pain like we treat uh, other illnesses uh, yeah. and, and they even made it one of the kind of the uh, you know you take your blood pressure you take your temperature they said you should also take a pain measurement mm -hmm. on people uh, and people shouldn't be in pain uh, and so then the pharmaceutical companies got involved marketing uh, and all of a sudden instead of going you know when I went to the dentist and had my wisdom teeth taken out I was given some you know over-the-counter pain medication now I hear stories about you know high school student getting their wisdom teeth out and they're given a, a month's supply of oxycodone yeah, you know it's insane. Yeah, um, yeah, and then that that puts them at risk then for, uh, you know, getting addicted. Because mm -hmm, a month's supply is, is a huge supply. It really is. It's your wisdom teeth. Exactly. You know, you've got a, a few days, a few right. days, and you can deal with a little bit of pain. Exactly. You know, you don't have to mask at all. Right. Um, and, and then you've got companies like the company f uh, from Canada that makes oxycodone. Um, you know, lying, lying to Congress lying to Senate about, um, you know, just like the tobacco companies once did, uh, about the effects of it, saying it's not addictive and non-addictive. Um, so one makes, uh, it make, that makes me think, why had the FDA not come in uh, at this point? Were they not looking at it uh, and testing it themselves and seeing the effects? I, I mean, I think the FDA will look at, you know, make sure that a, a drug is safe to use. But as far as the prescription of it, it gets a little a gray area. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as far as uh, um, the drug companies, there are a lot of states now that are actually suing some of these mm -hmm. drug companies, bringing you know, mass lawsuits against them yeah. for their part in this uh, crisis. Yeah. Uh, and, and But these drug companies, they have the protection of money. And with money comes lobby groups and uh, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and the pharmaceutical uh, lobby groups are some of the biggest, if not the biggest. Right, and I guess the other way that they can look at it too is say, well, look, we're making this drug, it's legal. Yeah. Uh, it definitely has an indication in, in, for medical use, and it's up to the individual physician to decide what patient needs it or not. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, they they do get involved in marketing, uh, yeah. and and that's where the problem comes in, I think. And, and you know, and you can prescribe something to somebody for some pain, but you don't know the makeup of their brain, and people have predisposition to addiction. 
Exactly right. So, I mean, there are different chemical makeups of people. And so by giving uh, these opioids to so many people, I think you start almost kind of selecting out these people who may not have ever you know, become addicted uh, before this mm-hmm. because they had never been exposed to it. Yeah. Uh, and so now more and more people are receiving these medications and more and more people are becoming addicted. So what's your response as a chief medical examiner? What, what, what's your response and what is core? So, uh, you know, medical examiners, we have a, a large public health role. A lot of people think we just do homicides and so forth. Mm-hmm. But uh, our statistics, our data, is really the hardest data you can get on this crisis. Uh, if you want to know if the crisis is improving or getting worse based on different interventions that are being used or if the drugs that are being used are changing, the medical examiner, they have that data. Mm-hmm. Hospitals can't track that. Hospitals don't do the type of toxicology testing that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we uh, can help showing, again, showing where the crisis is going. Is it getting better? Have certain interventions improved, uh, th- th- you know, help the, the crisis? Uh, they have started, uh, for example, limiting the number of days that a physician can prescribe a pain medication mm-hmm. or you have to go back to the doctor to get a refill. Yeah. Uh, and there are some electronic databases where, uh, you know, physicians can go in and look up a patient and see have they been to six other doctors and gotten pain medications from those other doctors. Yeah. And so they're so-called doctor shopping where they're looking for someone to prescribe them their medication. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, when it comes to you, you've got the program called CORE, which is, is am I right with that? I'm, I'm not sure. C-O-R-E. I looked it up and okay. now I've closed up all my things, so it's gone now. Right. Uh, but it's something about, um, it's a database. Okay. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, um, like you were saying, you know, um, looking at who's going to which doctor and something like that. But using... Um, uh, a database server system is that not just going to drive the problem underground even further yeah it, it certainly may that's that's the risk and and that's why we need to look at these numbers and see is there going to be a shift from say you know the the oxycodone and the hydrocodone now to the heroin and i think that's really what has been happening unfortunately mm-hmm. so you're kind of um, between a rock and a hard place in some ways. Yeah. You're trying to, to limit uh, the, ac- the access to it, but in some ways it drives people to, to another place. Um, now, during the 2016 presidential election and afterwards, there's been some tough words from um, your president um, uh, on the crisis, and there were some promises made. Uh, is that happening, and do you need more federal help? Uh, it is a national problem, and I think uh, federal uh, uh, government plays a role. Uh, they have formed a commission. Now, it's really a question of, of I think, of funding. I mean, that's what's really needed. I mean, mm-hmm. a commission can analyze it, but if they don't have the money to, to, to put into treatment and prevention, uh, that's that, that's going to be a problem. So, for example, our office you know, was was literally overwhelmed. I mean, we needed to bring in a refrigerated tractor trailer. We had to build a, a new uh, cooler space for all the additional bodies we were seeing. We didn't have enough doctors to, to do the cases. Uh, and so in some instances, the federal government, we've gotten some grants to help with some of the drug testing. Um, and, and it certainly helped, and I appreciate it, but we really we need more, and a lot mm. of other places need more as well. But when it really comes down to it, it sounds to me uh, the root of the problem is to get less prescriptions happening. And like you said, to get the number of days a prescription is worth down. In New Zealand, you know, I mean, I've got some, I've had some tooth issues <laughs> lately, and I got prescribed coding 
10, 10 milligram codeine uh, tablets for my pain uh, and also some paracetamol um, and I was given uh, a week and a half worth and that, that's roughly about what you'll get. Okay. Yeah. yeah, they've started cutting it down to about five or seven days, depending upon uh, what the the indication is. Um, but yeah, I think limiting it is is is, is a key part of it. Mm-hmm. And um, just finally on on this topic, um, uh, because you know, do, is there any progress being made? Do you do you see a, um, any time in the near future where um, you might be able to get on top of this? Um, like, like you said, you know, threefold or, or, or doublefold increase of deaths in the last three years. Um, you know, is it going to get worse or are we going to get better soon? You know, <laughs> uh, you know, there's an old saying in, in uh, you know, in surgery that, uh, you know, if you have bleeding during a surgery, they say, you know, all bleeding eventually stops. Don't worry. It either stops because you can stop it yourself yeah. or the patient dies. And I hope we're not going to have to go to that point. But I think education is an important part yeah. of it. And they have started even going to, you know, to, to middle schools and, 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 and teaching children and parents, you know, about the dangers of this. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've heard parents speaking about their, their children who, you know, had a, a knee problem from a sports thing and they got hooked on, you know, on drugs. And, and they say, now if I, my other child ever got, I'd say, you know, don't give them any pain medication, mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're really, I think there has been too liberal of a use of pain medications in the United States. And, um, and I think that's one of the major reasons why we have this. And yeah, unfortunately, this has been the outcome, which is pretty scary. It is. Pretty, pretty scary. All right, let's move on to the second uh, topic of your talk, uh, a review of uh, the New York City Medical Examiner's Office response to the World Trade Disaster, um, World Trade Center Disaster, and you were a medical examiner um, at the time in New York, so obviously you were involved, and I just can't imagine um, what it was like for a young medical examiner. Uh, like you were saying, you were, what, four years out of college. Um... And I guess I guess the main goal um, was identification. Exactly right. So uh, yeah, I was working in the, in the autopsy room that day in Manhattan, uh, doing an autopsy. I remember on a man who had shot himself. He committed suicide, and one of our technicians came in and said, "Oh, an airplane just hit the World Trade Center." And we're like, "What?" Uh, and after that, everything changed. And mm-hmm. the, the key question was, uh, you know, so there are many questions we ask when we're doing a death investigation. You know, what happened? Why did you die? Where did you die? Uh, who are you? Who are you? That was the key question that we needed to answer. Yeah. We all knew what happened. We all knew why the people died. We saw it on television. The question was, who are you? And most of the, the remains, there were over 20,000 remains eventually recovered. Very few uh, were intact bodies. Uh, mm. And uh, over 3,000 uh, people died in that in that, that day. Uh, and so it was a matter of trying to figure out who are you. And DNA testing is one of the first times, I think, where it really was used on, on this type of scale. Yeah. Where any any body fragment larger than a fingertip uh, was essentially tested for DNA. Mm-hmm. So, um, you, I mean, you can never be prepared for an event of this magnitude, but, um, you know, did you have any processes in place to deal with an event like this? Was there anything, that any studies done before, or anything done like this before, so you kind of knew where you were going? Well, how to begin at least? Well, yeah, I have to you know give credit to New York City a lot. They are, are always working on preparations for a variety of things. And one of the things that I think did help with with our management of this disaster was that it uh, occurred a year after the millennium, mm. and New York City had prepared like crazy, including our office, 
concerned that there was going to be some mass event uh, at the 2000, at the, the new year. Yeah. Uh, and so everyone was, was geared up and ready, and then nothing happened. So we had already a lot of that preparation, and, and we would work through that already, and so that helped a lot. But when you have a disaster like that, I mean, you wouldn't believe the support that comes out from everywhere yeah. uh, to help, uh, and uh, that made a big difference. Now, um, what is the role of a medical examiner in uh, a criminal investigation in, in this one? Um, you know, because you've got so many different law enforcement agents agencies and organizations uh, that would have been involved is it still your organization's task to um, determine the criminal whys and hows uh, not so much as the criminal uh, so we're going to issue the death certificate which is going to have the cause of death and then the manner of death and the manner of death can either be a natural death homicide suicide or accident mm -hmm. so if we certify it as a homicide that implies a criminal component to it uh, but we're really one piece of the puzzle you know it's really up to the prosecutors and DNA and witness statements and investigation to put it all together mm -hmm. but we can certainly say why this person died maybe what happened how far was the gun away from the body uh, and, and that's kind of the role that, that we play we are an independent agency a lot of um, uh, it varies around the country, but we don't work for the police. We don't work for the prosecutor. Yeah. We're a separate state agency. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what I've always wondered about, what about post-9-11 deaths um, caused by inhalation of, of, of debris and things like that? Where, where do they fall? Right. Um, so that becomes a little trickier for us for death certification because there are people, uh, the way that uh, we, we manage that is if the person had the exposure during the acute event, during the collapse, if they inhaled a lot of material that then resulted in, in one of the diseases we started seeing was called sarcoidosis. Mm -hmm. And if someone died from that acute inhalation, that would be certified as a homicide. If it was someone who wasn't at the initial event but was there the next day working on rescue or cleanup and from not wearing a mask and they were breathing it in for weeks and developed something, then that would be a, a more of a natural type death. Okay. Uh, and that has caused a lot of issues, hasn't it? It has. There's, there's been legislation about that. Uh, and uh, uh, there have been some, some, some controversies about that, but that's kind of a, a, a forensic pathology kind of standard. That's the way yeah. we have to be, you know, treat all the cases the same. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's just your role. Um, these deaths are like any other deaths any other day of the week, right? I mean, yeah, obviously they're not, but right, right. yeah, so you, you know, you've just got to do your job. Because, you know, when it comes to people's life insurances and, and things like that, you know, they've, it's, it's been quite devastating on families. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are some deaths even that we may certify as an accident, say a motor vehicle collision, that the police may bring charges against someone and, and may, you know, uh, um, charge them with manslaughter or something. But and so our, you know, our manner determination doesn't preclude, you know, further uh, any criminal investigation. Um, we miss the scene closed. Oh, boy. Um, you know, they're still finding, uh, I don't know if it's ever going to be closed, really. I mean, they, yeah. sometimes they'll do some new construction or open up an air duct and they find some fragments of bones. So that's been going on for years still. They, yeah. they, I think they last summer they made an identification even, I think. Um, and they're, we're still, they're still holding on to all these bony fragments that they couldn't get a DNA profile out of. Uh, they're storing them down actually at the memorial down at the World Trade Center in case in the future new technology 
new techniques come available where maybe they can look at them again and do yep. further studies. Yep, yep. Um, just, um, I guess, like they have done uh, in the past with rape cases and the like. Exactly. Um, so, you know, are there, still, are there still people that haven't been identified? Yes, about 60% of the people have been identified. Okay. Uh, but we knew going in that not everyone was going to be able to be identified. Yeah. And you look at, you know, the destruction, I mean, you know, you had steel reinforced concrete that was pulverized. You can imagine, you know, a bone is, is mm. similar to concrete. So some bone w was going to be pulverized. And there were fires that that raged for months after. So there's a lot of heat injury. Uh, and so a lot of the bone that we did recover uh, was called calcine bone. It was just uh, bone with no cells, no DNA. And so you can't really test that. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, were there lessons learned from the job? Uh, I, there were, I think, things about the DNA testing, certainly, and new techniques and new ways to uh, uh, to analyze that data was was certainly something that was learned and had to be developed. Uh, you know, a lot of the identifications were done by kind of reverse paternity testing. And in a typical paternity test where you try and get DNA from, you know, the, the mother and the father and you kind of work backwards. Yeah. You're dealing with one person, but here you're dealing with thousands and thousands of profiles. And so software needed to be made to be able to do all those comparisons. Yeah. You can't have one person go yeah. through thousands of profiles. Because, of course, you had a couple of, th you know, 3,000 profiles. And I think, well, every profile was seven pages long and you had bits and pieces. Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and even even 17 years ago, computer power was a, a lot less than it is now. So even... Uh, a big job developing that kind of stuff so correct um wow i mean like i said i just couldn't imagine what it was like and i guess um uh, it's the kind of thing that will never ever go away um so uh, can, yeah yeah so, sorry about that <laughs> i don't know what else to say really but um brilliant well we'll have to leave it there um thank you so much for coming on this morning Jim oh, thank you very much for inviting me it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, as I said before you are talking um, tonight from 5.30 to 6.30 at Castle Street 1 or Castle Lecture Theatre 1 sorry uh, for Forensic Pathology in the US Death, Drugs and Disasters once again Dr James Gill thank you so much for coming in this morning um, right.